Welcome back to the Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. I'm not in love, so don't forget it. It's just a silly phase I'm going through. And just because I call you up. I know you know you don't mean that much to me. Welcome, folks, to our in-depth look at arguably 10cc's absolute masterpiece, uh, a song that stands head and shoulders above not only their output, but also the output of, I guess, 99% of pop groups through the history of, of music. That might be a, a ridiculous claim, but I'm not sure if you're with me, Paul. I think I'm Not In Love really stands with the big six production records of all time, and I'm thinking of course, about records like Strawberry Fields, Good Vibrations, Bohemian Rhapsody, maybe River Deep Mountain High or You've Lost That Loving Feeling, maybe even Mr Blue Sky as well, if, if I can be contentious there. Well, it's entered general public consciousness, um, which many records, most records don't. And I think it's true to say that none of the other... 10cc hits, including the two number ones, Rubber Bullets and Dreadlock Holiday, 
have had anywhere near mm. the same of, of reach, outreach. That's maybe partly because it was truly an international hit. It was number two in America, um, one of their only two hits in America. It was a worldwide smash. But it's not just a hit record. It, it creates an atmosphere. Mm. Um, we'll, we'll talk about the, the incredible journey that the song took um, from its beginnings as, uh, you know, just a small riff on a guitar through some misdirections um, until the four members of 10CC all working at their absolute peak in, yeah. in, in, a, in a completely uh, utilising their different talents um, to, to bring it to fruition, even though the song was written by um, Eric and Graham, it is undoubtedly a product of the, the four of them collaborating, which is marvellous. And, and yeah, it, it, it's 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 one of those songs that will that transcends the group 10CC. Um, it's it's been covered by hundreds of different people. <laughs> uh, some good, some not so good. Yeah, but just the mere fact of the number of covers is, is an indication of of how widely it's it's known and loved. And you hear people talk about it. Um, you know, we've probably spent a bit too much time on YouTube looking uh, at, for, for things and comments on YouTube. I can, I find to very find to be very illuminating sometimes. And yeah. there's a lot of comments about I'm not in love, um, which aren't specifically about 10cc. They're just about uh, memories that people people of a certain age particularly have about this song taking them back to a particular time. You know, it's the power that music has. And this is is one of the great examples of music and a record, not just a song, being able to do that. I, I totally agree. And uh, it's no accident that I remember year after year, Radio 2 listeners would vote it their all-time favourite. Yeah. And uh, it, it really is across generations. Yes, yeah, it's, it's weird you say that it takes you back to a certain time. For me, it's very, very mundane. I'm on holiday age 11 at Pontins in Minehead. And my, my stepbrother, David, is obsessed with the record. Mm-hmm. I'd not really heard it much. I, I wasn't following pop music that closely. At age 11, I was just kind of being born musically, I suppose, then. And he, you know, with his one-pound spending money, I think he had for the week of maybe 50p, uh, he put all of it into the jukebox in the games room. And every single time, he chose this song. So for me, there's that, that image of, of people kicking balls around and hitting each other with, with snooker cues <laughs> to the is that, soundtrack. Is that what Pontins is like? <laughs> or was like? <laughs> I can only speak from my one-off experience right. there, Paul. But that, 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 was, that was it, and that's where... Um, that was my first experience of the song. There was something really magical about it. Well, I, I mean, I'll tell you now, my experience with I'm Not In Love, I didn't like it. Really? I like Life is a Minestrone, heard that on the radio, and taped it during the Top 20 rundown. Mm. I didn't like I'm Not In Love. I thought it was boring mm. at age 12. And in fact, I can remember being quite pleased when Donna Estelle and Windsor Davis knocked it off the top <laughs> of the charts with uh, Whispering Grass, which I think was a record that came after, which is embarrassing. Then there was a phase of school disco when it was a, a slow dance and it had it seemed to go on for ages smooch staple it, it seemed to go on for ages you thought i've got time to make my move and maybe try and get this girl to snog me <laughs> uh, because we're only at the middle bit and i know this song goes on for ages so i'm afraid my um, my initial recollections or my initial involvement with the song was um, 
well, it was not really romantic to, to <laughs> not coin a phrase. Uh, but eventually I, I came under its spell. I think when I started to investigate 10CC and went, and went back to the greatest hits album a couple of years later, yeah. then it floored me. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, it still does. It's certainly unique as a record. And like you were saying before, there was something akin to divine inspiration, I think, when, when the four of them were working on this. Uh, Kev has said that every single little crazy thing they tried on it made the song better. Mm. And they kept adding those little touches. And every single one of the touches made it better. And how right it was when it was finished, they knew it was finished. And how finished it was. Eric's spoken many times, hasn't he, about the, the, the origins of the song. He was, am I right in thinking, about nine years into his, his marriage with Gloria. That's right, I believe. Married in 66, I, I think. I believe so, yeah. And she was always complaining that he didn't, he didn't tell her uh, that he loved her often enough. And that played on his mind, didn't it? Hmm, yeah, and it, 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 that thought... Uh, the initial thought, I think, was something like, well, if I tell you all the time, it will cease to mean anything. Mm. And that eventually morphed into the idea for, for the song where um, he, he's, he's saying, I'm not in love, but, but the subtext is giving all the reasons to, to tell mm. the, the subject of the song that he is in love. Um, a br- brilliant idea, which I, I don't think had ever been done before. It's, it's a wonderful idea, and, and I think the, the lyrics... The, the lyrics convey that brilliantly well, I think. I like the, the sort of mundanity of the lyrics, as if they're deliberately self-effacing, they're, they're, they're tongue-in-cheek. He's, he's, he's deluding himself, isn't he? Exactly. He's bare, this, the protagonist is barely in control of his feelings. Mm. I'd like to see you, but then again, mm. that doesn't mean you mean that much to me. It's <laughs> a lovely bit of wordplay, plus... You know, if I call you, don't make a fuss. Don't tell your friends about the two of us. He's <laughs> embarrassed by the whole thing. That's right. The picture's just there because it's hiding a nasty stain. Yeah, that nasty stain is a, is a lovely lyric. It really sticks out. It alludes slightly to some sexual longing or, uh, you know, a sexual um, dimension to the relationship, if you like. It's very subtle. That, that, yeah. that's, all it, that's all it says. Or he's just being deliberately sort of brutal, dismissive uh, and, and mundane. But with all the words that he's using there, you can tell that he's just really trying a bit too hard. He, he doth protest too much. Yes, that's right. Um, the original Middle Eight had lyrics, which they scrapped. Um, the lyrics are... Don't feel let down, don't get hung up. We do what we can, we do what we must. They don't scan very well, mm. even though there's a little bit of wordplay in there, down, you know, let down, hung up. It doesn't really sound very good. But I think more importantly, it kind of breaks a spell because the, the protagonist is almost having a conversation with himself there, mm. perhaps even with the other party in the song. There. He's explaining what's really going on. And I think the key to this song is that on the surface and the actual lyrics that are sung, he never will admit to himself what's really going on. Mm. So I think for all kinds of reasons, those lyrics were right to be excised from the finished product.
the melody's quite nice, and I'm glad that part of that lives on in, in Lowell's lovely piano bit in that middle eight, which we'll look at in detail a bit later. Yeah. But they made, going back to what we were saying before, every decision they made, every single decision they made with the production of this song worked like magic. Exactly. Before we have a look at, at where we think and how we, we think the song developed musically, and we've, we've, we've got our instruments with us to, today just to kind of do a rudimentary kind of deconstruction, if you like. It's been really interesting reading both Eric's book, The Things I Do For Love, and also Kev Godley's Space Cake, I'm trying to get a, a picture of where they saw themselves in terms of their roles of putting songs together. Uh, and Eric and Kev seem to be uh, in agreement that their key strengths were Kev with, with his lyrics, lol, with melody, Graham with chords, he had a mastery of those. And I think Eric came up uh, with a lot of the ideas for the songs. He'd come up with the whole premise, he'd come up with the, the, the many of the lyrics, the basic chord structures and so on, the melody. I guess he doesn't get so much credit for that. He was arguably one of the key lyricists in, in, in 10CC. And we tend to think of, of Lol and Kev, don't we, as being the kind of the, the lyrical pacemakers. Yeah, you're right. Eric uh, you know, came up with, just off the top of my head, Wall Street Shuffle. It's a completely different idea for a song. I'm Mandy, The Things We Do For Love. Blackmail. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, but not just the story songs. He had a really good way with personal songs yeah. and finding, at least at this stage, at the peak of his writing ability, a, a real different way into a song. And this is undoubtedly the best example of all of them. Definitely. Yeah, under, very underrated as, as a lyricist. Yeah, and it, it, you could say that Eric's probably responsible for about 90% of this song in terms of melody and the, the basic chord structure. Yes, Graham embellished it beautifully, as, as, as we'll see shortly. Yeah. Uh, but Eric was the, 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 the real engineer behind the, this song. Agreed. It, yes, he certainly wrote most of the music and most of the words, uh, but Graham's contributions were vital, as, as everybody's contributions were for this, this sure. song. We're referencing uh, an article that appeared first in the magazine Sound on Sound, a kind of music uh, industry magazine. Uh, they run a, a classic tracks feature. And in 2005, uh, Richard Buskin uh, was the author. This great piece that goes into a load of detail about the writing and the recording of the song, which we're going to use as a kind of template. Richard Buskin, as a, as a brief aside, along with Robert Rodriguez, um, co-hosts, or used to co-host, great podcast called Something About the Beatles, which is something of an influence on this podcast, mm. in that you can just have two guys waffling on <laughs> about a subject they're obsessive over, and people, right. will, and people will listen. And in true Beatles style, Richard Buskin and Robert Rodriguez had a big falling out a year or so ago, and they've just split up, emulating their their <laughs> idols, the Beatles. So let's hope that doesn't happen with us. Yeah, let's hope, let's hope we haven't got lawyers involved yet. But uh, anyway, so um, back to this article. It's a great great piece, um, and it talks how talks about how Eric had the germ of this song, 
uh, and I'm, I'm quoting here, I had the guitar hook first, a little arpeggio, arpeggio on an open A chord, which Sean mm. is going to demonstrate as best we can. Well, we're trying to second guess Eric there, aren't we? Yeah, I don't know what he means mean? by a guitar hook. Maybe he means he found the original bit of melody. So there's the open A chord. Maybe it was just... opening chords maybe I, and, and, and I'm kind of arpeggiating the chords there a little bit yeah that, that the opening there I think that that's onto something it goes from a major to a minor and that that movement already very melancholy just the way it moves in the second chord to something sad oh, I love that change from 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 major to minor there really really lovely yeah so we think maybe that that um, that was the genesis of the song as it were and reading from the article again here it says um, it kept going through my head so when I got the idea to write the words I'm not in love it sort of slotted together once I'd clicked on the idea to approach it that way it was actually very easy to write mm. um, and he says I had the first six chords or so of the verse figured and I already had the melody figured in my head so this is the bit that Eric had written on his own which is really the, the, the meat and potatoes of the song isn't it? It really is and, and it's a lovely progression you go from start with that A major down to A minor then it goes down to G sharp minor seventh and then it just majorizes just goes up to G sharp seventh very subtle change and then to C sharp minor adding a seventh so. Yeah. Beautiful, very subtle. Yeah, and that bottom over shuffle is already implicit in those kind of chords and the way it might may have been um, discovered on the guitar definitely it? the minor sevenths have definitely you know lend themselves to jazz and, and to, to Latin American sort of stuff there's a, a lovely kind of melodic arc going on here where we have dominant notes which we'll hear in the vocal arrangement a little bit later that kind of creep downward and then back upward in a chromatic way in other words you know semitone by semitone so you've got a, a dominant sort of C sharp element to the first A chord dropping to a C within the A minor, B within the G sharp minor chord, and then back up to a C in the G sharp seventh, and then back up to the C sharp minor. So, um, Kind of reminds me of well a, a lot of a lot of sort of stuff. Um, it's quite backeracky, but predominantly it reminds me of God only knows. And if I can just uh, grab the keyboard there, Paul.
so you've got that uh, exactly the same the same kind of chromatic run going on there where you're going from B over A there um, with an A uh, with an A in the bass and then you've got a B in the bass for the E chord then you've got a C in the bass going back down to B so mm. it's an identical an identical kind of arc yeah. but, but in reverse this one goes up and then down whereas Eric's goes down and then up but right. I, th I think they're, they're really very very similar kind of progressions very satisfying and so yeah there's something very satisfying about a through line where you can follow even subconsciously something going up and down it's following a logical path yeah. like, like going up and down the hill again in a very subtle way definitely so Eric had the, the genesis of, of this song, um, and he then goes on to say in the, in the sound on sound article, we usually wrote in pairs, and while the major hits came out of Godly and Cream, or myself and Graham Goldman, we were a very incestuous bunch. We used to swap mm. partners, that's well known. Um, so I think Kevin and Lowell were actually working on uh, uh, One Night in Paris at this time, so the yeah. obvious thing was for, for Eric to team up with Graham. Um, they went off into a room and worked up this song slightly unusually uh, on two guitars, not a keyboard yeah. and guitar. Normally Eric wrote on the keyboard and Graham would write on the guitar. That's their, their normal mode of operation. But mm. this time they both wrote on, on guitars. But we're, we're going to demonstrate on keyboard some of the fantastic touches that Graham came up with yeah. um, to start to flesh out this song. Uh, and there are there are three, uh, most notably the f the famous introduction, which is something like, and that in itself is a gorgeous chord, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a suspended chord. It, it's A um, over a B bass note, resolving to a full B chord, obviously retaining the B bass note. And Eric himself in this article says he describes this. Uh, this little sequence as something very expectant mm. of what's to come, and that and that that is undoubtedly true. However, this this sequence, which we see um, also in five o'clock in the morning, for example, mm. it doesn't resolve to where you think it's going to resolve to. Uh, you kind of expect it to go something like. Um, resolve to the E major yeah but it, it doesn't it kind of crabs upward uh, through what is actually a, a C diminished chord but really that's it's better to think of the, the final movement for, before it gets into the verse as just shifting the note up chromatically from a B to a C so you've got something like yeah then you've got that So it's that. Uh, I mean, I, I, th I think I'm correct in 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 the in the labelling of that chord. But it's it's more a physical thing. It's more again this this motif of shifting something very slightly yeah. to, to make an, a new feel. And it doesn't resolve to the major as we've said there, uh, to the to the tonic which you would expect from like an eleven chord suspension. It resolves <coughs> to to the A chord, sure. which is almost slipping back down again. We could do, do that just to demonstrate, Paul. We'll go around the intro a couple of times, Why couldn't not? we? Yeah, well, it's been played millions of times. This will be a million and a half. Yes. Yeah. Two, three, four.
So yeah, fantastic. So that was one of the bits Graham came up with. Um, he also came, came up with a lovely little link section between at the end of the first verse. Um, so we think Eric probably had It's because to which Graham adds the lovely A over E G over E back to A over E so you've got that tension, the bass note never changes, but mm. you've got that lovely little riff, uh, the right-hand chords move a little bit. Mm. So that's the Goldman magic number two. And uh, his third uh, piece that he invented, again, this is coming directly from the article, and it's coming from Eric's quote, so clearly he, he's, he's um, uh, you know, allocating these, these parts to, to Graham, obviously, as written, is the bridge. Because the, up until this point, the harmony's been quite cramped. It's moving uh, very slowly. It's trying to move and it kind of gets dragged back to where it was. Yep. And suddenly the music over the section, which eventually became, ooh, you'll wait a long time for me, really opens out into what is a fairly standard uh, turnaround. Mm. Ooh, you'll wait a long time for me. With a descending bass again. A couple of chords that are there that are closely related to the to the introduction again, but that that's a really uh... and, the, and those chords. Sorry, if I can just say, that, that's exactly the same progression that we have in my favourite bit of Blint's tune, and I might even overdub a bit of Gizmo here, Paul, just for the sheer hell of it. Why not? Yeah. Um, that's, that's... that's D add two over E, and then going to D ma uh, E major. But it's a lovely contrast because this is several minutes into the song. Yeah. It's claustrophobic, it's intense, uh, and then you've got this beautiful pop bridge uh, with m more traditional material in a way, yeah. uh, contrasting beautifully um, with the rest of the song. Mm. Um, so it was a, already a magic song, yeah. uh, even though they hadn't found the feel for it, and we'll, mm. we'll talk about the, the original version. Uh, discarded and then um, approached in the famous way through through voices and tape loops, etc. Yep. Um, but Graham Goldman often mentions this. I've heard I've heard him say this several times. If you've got the song, the arrangement kind of looks after itself. Yeah. And they clearly had a hell of a song here. Mm. And sooner or later, they were they were going to knock it out of the park. Yeah. And the premise itself um, is 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 so subtly brilliant as well it's so different it's off off kilter and and you've immediately got a hook haven't you yes that's right everything about the song and they must have been aware while they were writing the lyrics everything about the song is yearning and uh, the text on the surface is saying i'm not in love but 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 everything else the the words themselves the music is is crying out that i am in love i mm -hmm. I, I really you know i really need you um Something we were looking at, you know, songs with similar chords in, and this is interesting. How Long by Ace, written by Paul Carrick, uh, was released also in 1975. Mm. So originally, uh, well, let me just let me just play the introduction because it, it's really quite similar. functions also as the verse okay 
okay, it goes somewhere else after that. But that little crabbing note mm. where it goes up to the, in this key, the C diminished chord and the, the opening two rotating chords, they're exactly the same. Yeah. But um, Timeline says that uh, I'm Not In Love was recorded by the time uh, How Long was released. And actually, I'd like to know mm. whether How Long might have copied I'm Not In Love. I, I, it can't <laughs> be the other way around now. We've, 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 yeah. we've solved that. So... Who knows? But also, also a fantastic song. Yeah, there's, there's, there's room for two, two great songs. And there's songs another great singer. Oh man, he sure is. Yeah. How long has this been going on? Get up in the morning, look in the mirror. The morning has a toothbrush hanging. It really amuses me hearing the stories of. Kevin Lowell's reaction to to when Eric and Graham have played them this this bossa novary thing. Kev's quoted directly as saying he thought it was just crap. Well, not not initially. They they did. I think I think they were non-committal, but they said, okay, we'll record everything because that's the way we operate. Mm. I think it was after the recording that his attitude hardened. Oh. That's what I believe. Okay. This um, this sound on sound article uh, gives. I'm not quite sure where this is coming from. There's a lot of detail about the recording of the first version mm. of, of the song. Mm. And I don't know whether uh, this was something which Eric Stewart actually talked... I mean, how can he remember the detail about the recording? It's about mic placement, the number of mics. Or is that paragraph uh, a sort of general comment on the way that Tensy C would normally be recorded in That's the That's the way I took it, actually, Paul, to yes. be honest. Yes, OK, it has to be, doesn't it? Yeah. Because if the tape of the original version is gone, surely he hasn't got a, a memory of, of that session as that being that distinct, the, the, the aborted session. But as a, as a seasoned, professional and brilliant engineer, mm. he probably had that, that memory, the photographic memory. And, and I imagine right. that his, his mic setup was, was pretty much the same on most, on most stuff that he did. Right. So, uh, as is well known, they recorded this song as, as a bossa nova, mm. uh, inspired in, in part by the way the music had, had pointed the song. Yeah, he, he kind of points to Stan Getz and Astrid Gilberto, doesn't he? Yeah. As, as, yeah. as kind of influences there. trying to imagine what that might have sounded like of course they wiped that version from the tape because they were they were recycling the expensive 200 quid tape reels in those days um, and all we've got is Eric's later version of it but I wonder what it actually sounded like as a, as a two-piece with them sitting in the room playing it um, so we thought we'd have some fun yeah just to show that yeah. it sounded nothing at all like this yeah so <laughs> take it away Mr Godley on drums a one Two, a one, two, three, and And uh, Ke Lol and particularly Kev didn't like it at all. Mm. And as per group policy, they scrapped it, and that mm. meant erasing the tape. <laughs> which, uh, as Eric says, it pissed him off. And no wonder, having coming up with this song that he liked a lot, and, uh, and th that's it. We, but he knew it had something, didn't he? Well, this is where we have to thank <laughs> Kathy Good Redfern. Kathy. 
who so often uh, plays a you know a pivotal role in the 10 cc yeah. story she went around the office humming it and singing it <laughs> and and other members of staff who presumably were the only other people who'd ever heard the song yeah. on a, on a couple of listens before the before the original version was erased saying oh, I really like that song that's the best song you've done and that also pissed Kev off <laughs> <laughs> because he, he, he wasn't going to be able to keep this song down um and uh, again, 20C playing to their strength said, okay, we're going to do this song. How are we going to do it differently? That's right. And we look straight to the, the usual form book, to Godly and Cream, to flip the whole thing on its head, reinventing the, the way songs are traditionally recorded. And Kev suggested doing it completely with vocals, didn't he, as a, uh, using voices like an orchestra. Mm. And not in a Beach Boys way, as Eric said, um, but as a choir. Um, and that's, that's where the genius began, wasn't it? Um, and I think Eric spent a lot of time trying to think how that could be achieved. Yes. There's only four of us. Yeah. Uh, and then lol it was, wasn't it? It came up with the idea of, of putting these massed choir vocals onto individual tape loops. Yeah, it's lovely there that lol was the final of the four members to have a key moment with the song. So they'd all contributed yeah. in, in an absolutely key way. And without those four contributions, the song could not have existed in the form it does. Mm. So that's that's a kind of lovely squaring of the circle almost. Absolutely. Four separate contributions of absolute genius. Yeah. Uh, so grateful for it because it, it's left us with something that is completely unique. And I love the, the stories. We've heard them so many times, haven't we, on uh, the documentary, on the record producers programme, uh, in books and articles and so on. The, that painstaking three weeks of three of them, minus Eric, of course, he was in the control room, recording the three of them recording the same note over and over again on a, a chromatic scale from C all the way through to uh, the upper octave with C, 13 notes sung over and over again, um, 16 times, three of them singing for as long as they could get a note out without drawing breath. Yeah. Uh, that's 13 times 48, is it? You've that, got the, you've got the right. scoreboard down there. <laughs> How many right. voices is that in total? It's 624 voices <laughs> in total. It took three weeks. No wonder it took them three weeks. They must have gone blue in the face. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, in a little bit of time, Paul and I will give you just our brief reminiscences of, of, of when we both separately had a little pop at, at copying that technique. And certainly from our point of view, as, as middle-aged smokers, it was impossible to get more than about five seconds out without somebody gasping for oxygen halfway through a note. So Eric's sitting there at his wraparound 24-channel Helios desk uh, that he's had designed, and um, the recordings are, are being physically recorded onto a 16-track 3M machine. So imagine that he's recording each of these notes uh, onto the 16-track machine, and then he's he's bouncing the, bouncing those repeat recordings down so that they eventually occupy just one single track so channel one track one would be the note c and then they do the same operation again and those parts would be 
then bounce down to track two, and that would be your C sharp, etc., etc., etc. So they end up with 13 tracks on on the on the tape. 13 out of the 16 tracks uh, being occupied by just these these mass vocal overdubs. And then what happened next is something that is sure to enter rock mythology, I think, because it's just so brilliant. It's so Heath Robinson. It's almost primitive in its simplicity, but utter genius. And this goes back to Lowell's suggestion where each of those individual vocal tracks, so let's say the, the C note that is, is sung 16 times by the, by the three singers, uh, that is then recorded onto the quarter-inch machine where they do their mastering to, and they would have got, I don't know, maybe 20 seconds of, of them singing. And they produced a physical tape loop, however many feet that would be, quite long, I would think. And then Eric came up with the plan of having a little sort of capstan wheel uh, on a mic stand that would act as a kind of a bobbin for the tape to come from the tape machine around the mic stand and back in this long sort of loop. And obviously where the, where the, the two ends of the tape were joined, there'd be a little bit of a, a little glitch. But his thinking was that because there's, there are 13 of these loops going round, the glitches would kind of be hidden within that mass of, of, of vocals. So they then mixed those loops back onto the, the multi-track machine and then they were then able to uh, have, a, if you like, a, a permanent non-stop background of this wonderful vocal sound, which we'll hear a short burst of in a minute. And that enabled them to manipulate the volume of each of those notes using the mixing desk. Uh, and that's when they decided that the four of them would record a backing track for I'm Not In Love, where uh, each of the four members could move the faders up and down individually to match the chords of the song. So, for example, during the, uh, the A major chord, the C-sharp note would be more dominant, and then when it changes to A minor, the C-sharp would be faded down and the C would be faded up a little bit, so you get that lovely sort of shifting thing. But they recorded an instrumental backing track, didn't they? Which was only intended to be temporary. That's right. Right, and that's another stroke of genius. When they, I think they had originally envisaged it would be a cappella, as per the original idea. But when yeah. they put down the Rhodes piano and the paper thin, um, unamplified guitar, it sounded magical. So they said, well, "Okay, well, we'll we'll go with this because it sounds amazing." Mm. So another happy accident. <laughs> And because they only had three tracks left on the on the multi-track tape, anyway, yeah, I mean, thirteen tracks were taken up with if vocals. They, if they tried this like a couple of years ago on an eight-track machine, they couldn't have done it. <laughs> no. So every, even mathematics was in their favour. <laughs> yeah. you know. 
And Eric talks about the wonderful effect that you get from from any kind of choir. One of the reasons that choirs sound so wonderful is the slight variations in pitch between singers, and you end up with a, um, a an effect called chorus. I mean, it goes back to the the Latin for choir, I think. Mm. Uh, that lovely kind of shimmery effect that comes when two notes aren't quite at the same pitch. Mm. And here you've got 624 voices that aren't quite perfect because we're human. Yeah. Uh, a marvellous, marvellous sound. Um, the backing track, I think, is inspired as well. It's so simple. Uh, and we'll look shortly in detail at, at, in our own sort of reconstruction of this track. Uh, the the wonderful simplicity of the instrumental choices they came up with. Lowell had uh, access to a Moog. I'm not sure if he owned one, but he'd learned how to program it. And he came up with a beautiful uh, kick drum sound for Kev to play by hand. Just like a, a kick drum, actually, but with a, just an extra element of click in it that really cuts through beautifully. And one thing that I've, I've marvelled at, sort of revisiting I'm Not In Love recently, is just how brilliant Kev's timing is on this. Because there was no metronome. He just played this live, and they did it more or less without slipping in tempo. The great thing about Kev's performance, if I may just cut in there, isn't just his timing, which is rock solid. We know that from his drumming. It's the little extra beats and anticipations and missing beats it, it really gives us the it's like the a heart palpitating definitely and the, and the sound is very much like a heartbeat yeah uh fantastic and really remarked upon it's um it's another great godly kind of drum performance yeah. in its most minimalist form the guitar track is perfect as well it's typically with with the way eric was recording guitars at that time the guitar was was plugged straight into the desk, electric guitar, um, and w which gives you a very, very dry sound. It's very warm as well, actually. And Eric EQ'd it in a way so that most of the bass and all of the middle was taken out. So you've literally just got those, those very, very light higher frequencies, which gives you something that when you listen in headphones, just it sort of brushes your it ear. It tickles your ear, doesn't it? Does. it? It's all, it, it doesn't get in the way of anything. Yeah. And, and, it, and it, it, it complements um, Eric's lovely Fender Rhodes electric piano part Yeah, which well. takes up a lot of the space. Have you noticed that guitar sound from this point? Tensei C used it a lot. They must have liked the way it left room in the frequency map, if yep. you like. And on a lot of later songs, the yeah, acoustic I, guitars were recorded in that way. Yeah, but, I'm Andy Flyme. He's got exactly the same guitar yeah, sound on it. Lifeline on yeah. Bloody Taurus. I'm thinking of, it's often not so extreme, a guitar, often an acoustic guitar, because this, of course, was an electric guitar. It was Eric's Red Gibson. Uh, yeah. But the way they recorded guitars, must have there must have been a takeaway from the, the way they came out on this song, I think. Just like a rolling stone So yeah, it must have been very, very in intense moments where they're recording that backing track. Kev's under pressure to keep a, a steady tempo, and I've, I've worked this out, Paul. Uh -huh. uh, Sixty-six and a half beats per minute. Okay. Which is very, very slow. Yeah. Uh, for a song, uh, but he, he keeps that tempo really, really well. 
Um, and so they've recorded this backing track. And then it almost makes my ass go tight when I hear this or read it anywhere. Uh, Eric knows that in order to finish the song, he's got to erase those vocal recordings. The original versions, you mean? Yeah, the yeah. 13 vocal yes. tracks that, yes. of, of loops. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the band have basically produced this record the wrong way around. They've started with the vocals. Yeah. And they've got to produce the first mix of the song is effectively an a cappella mix where, as we said before, they're using the faders to kind of boost and, and reduce different notes and create the ha-ha-ha-ha ah, 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 effects that sound so wonderfully sort of cello-like. Again, huge pressure because that mix has to be perfect for the final record. They can't, can't go back and change it mm. because they're creating a, a simple stereo mix bouncing effectively from 13 tracks down onto two. Yeah. Any mistakes they make, any discrepancy in volume or whatever, are there forever. Uh, I wonder how long it took them actually to do that that kind of live Yes, and they, they could have mix. attempted that a number of times, right, before they then had to erase the tracks. That's right. Yeah, so it was a performance, but it was a, a redoable performance. That's yeah. right, okay. yeah. And Eric had got his guide vocal down, hadn't he, at this stage? The, just the guide, that's, that's right. right. There was an original scratch vocal because the final lead vocal was, was a, was a one-take job, wasn't it? Yeah, Eric says that he kept the guide vocal because well, it, it, he tried to improve on it. I think there was a scratch vocal based on the kind of topography of the track. Would there have had to have been a vocal to just sort of a placeholder in the song? Yeah. Right, so that, that was wiped. But the, what he thought was going to be a guide... Uh, first run essentially was uh, was kept because it was so good yeah again when you're when you're in the zone and you're working on something like that you know it just uh, um, it came together magically yeah yeah one thing that Eric is very adamant on and has been throughout his career and has gotten him into arguments with with fellow musicians and co-producers and I think about Hugh Padgham when the two of them were, were hired to work on a Paul McCartney album mm -hmm. and they were really rubbing up against each other. Hugh Padgham was used to singers going in and recording a take and then what's called comping, mm. where they go in and literally just redo a few lines and then basically what you do is you, you choose a few bits from vocal A, a few bits from vocal B, so you come up with a kind of a, a combination mm. of the two. Eric is adamant that he always performs the lead vocal from start to finish, mm. uh, which is clearly what he was doing. Yeah, uh, because doing then it. you can hear a through line of a performance. That, that makes sense. That's right. Um, so Eric, you know, stayed true to his, his values on that one. I love the stories that Eric and, and Kev are, are telling in their books about their system of of welcoming ideas, people trying out the ideas in the studio. The, th the other three are in the control room looking through the glass and one person will say, oh, I'll try out a lead vocal or I'll, I'll, I've thought of a little bit I can add. And they've got the little placards, haven't they? And uh, allegedly there were three placards. One was, next! Another one was, stop! And the other one, which I, it really amuses me, is, how dare you? Ah, As right. a response to being okay. rejected. Which, uh, uh, and apparently that was the, the you know the the source of the of their fourth album title. Oh, okay. uh, and apparently Kev was just unstoppable with with his ideas, according to Eric. Uh, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall at those sessions. Oh, yeah. But uh, 
one lovely little final touch to the record. Uh, in addition to Lowell um, swinging a, a music box on a piece of string. And Graham's superb bass guitar solo. Yeah, of course, which uh, we'll have a go at, 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 at trying to copy. But um, Lowell came up with uh, a lovely idea for that final cherry on the cake. Um, apparently, during uh, recording his piano part, uh, he makes, and it, and it was recorded on tape, he makes a comment and says, be quiet, big boys don't cry. And I think as they were listening, kept, they kept listening and re-listening to the playback of the piano session, they suddenly had the brainwave to get someone with a really lovely, sexy voice to speak those words. And luckily, Kathy Redfern in the office, who came into the studio to, I don't know, said there was, there's a phone call for you, Mr. Cream, or something like that. Yeah. That's when the Eureka moment happened, wasn't it? Big boys don't cry. Big boys don't cry. Big boys don't cry. Big boys don't cry. Yeah, and she had to be persuaded to do it, but um, she she did it beautifully. Uh, that artistically, uh, I think in the song that's important because uh, we've heard the protagonist, and we're. I know it's a kind of throwaway lyric. Big boys don't cry. Is it? A bit later on that evening, when he's he's gone round to the, the the subject in the song's house, and they're together, and he's kind of he's let his guard down. It's the woman in the song, isn't it? I yeah. mean, that's the way I take it, Definitely. and that's that's very it enriches the song. I know, I, I know, it's a throw. It sounds like it's a throwaway moment that they added to the song, but it yeah. gives it a lot of depth. Yeah, because he, it's a two-way conversation. I agree. Male voice is about being in denial, protesting too much, and basically lying about how, how much in love yeah. he is. And, and the female voice is the actual truth. Yes. So it's this kind of the falsehood and truth suddenly he, bursting he's through. He's crying isn't on it? her shoulder by that stage. That's, that's, yeah. that's the impression. And it's I, a wonderfully emotional moment, that, I think. Human voices, if used... It's difficult in a pop voice to use a spoke in a pop song to use a spoken voice in a way that isn't corny you know you're thinking all this of, happens because the world is waiting for one child yeah you're thinking of that sort of thing but I'm thinking of um, Dark Side of the Moon I know it's not a single but mm. the human voices on that album uh, talking about you know fears about mortality and talking about violence or whatever it is yeah. they give a real depth to the music they do and I think in a, in, a, in a single in a context of a pop single this really does does the same thing mm. in a pretty serious way. It's not frivolous. It's not corny. It's it's uh, it's charged, isn't it? That's right. And there's there's an added power to it, I think, because it's a tape loop. Yes. Rather than her just saying the words over and over again, there's something very insistent about her voice being exactly the same repeated three or four times. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of vibrating in in harmony, if you mm. will, with the rest of the track, isn't it? Almost. Yeah. It's a tape loop amidst other tape loops. Yeah. What uh, we'd like to do is just have a, have a, a detailed look, track by track, um, through that tape, the 16 tracks that are on that, on that tape. We've got um, absolute concrete proof of what was recorded on each track because Eric very, very kindly provides us with a photo of the tape box. Yes, in, in uh, just propped up on a, against a wall on on a very, very clean carpet. Have you noticed how well they must have really got the hoover around before they took that picture? Presumably in his house in the Dordogne. That's right. And, yeah. and that, that, 
that lovely photo of the of the thirteen tape boxes with the with the original tape loops yeah. still in. Yeah. One of them spilling out onto this super yeah. clean carpet. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, <laughs> wonderful. I mean, I, I hope he's kept them in the fridge. Uh, you know, these are these Perhaps are he keeps precious in his, artifacts in his wine cellar. It's nice and cool <laughs> down there. I don't he know. likes a bottle, doesn't yeah, he? Why not? Yeah, we're going to go track by track through through that machine, uh, and and try as we might to to make a very very weak attempt to reconstruct this work of genius. You'll have to you'll have to have a, have a chuckle at our expense, folks, and and just excuse our. Uh, our amateurness in this, but we're, we're just trying to show the level of ingenuity here, and also the level of of brilliant, subtle use of effects uh, that are both tasteful and innovative, but ultimately beautiful. Um, so we'll take you through. Well, here I am down in our hole. And I want to just play you a few snippets of our step-by-step rough facsimile, a reconstruction of what we think was going on on that 16-track machine at Strawberry. Just a a little bit of background to explain how we came up with uh, the the vocal pads here. Uh, A few years ago, my band B-Side and I uh, were putting together a track called Sky Crying Rain, where we were going for that I'm not in love sound and we wanted to emulate what they were trying to do back in 1975 obviously we weren't recording to tape and uh, certainly we didn't have to use physical tape loops but we did a similar thing Uh, we couldn't sing for as long as they could uh, with our our weak old lungs but what we did was we recorded about 150 tracks of vocals Uh, there were just two or three of us singing at any given time so already we had way fewer vocals than, than 10cc managed to do in those three weeks. Ours would, would, had to be squeezed into a day. So we, it was a bit of a rush job. But we ended up with something like 300 and something vocals on this. This is what it kind of sounded like as it was building up. Here's starting with our low note, F sharp, moving up to F at the top. We're singing different pitches to what 10cc were doing. This is what it was it would have sounded like. So then from those original recordings, I looped them using my Logic Pro software. Um, didn't involve any sellotape or mic stands or anything like that. Looped them together so we had each note playing in a sort of continuous form. And then I was able to use the virtual faders to bring certain notes up and down. So if we listen here, we can hear the C sharp, the C and the B just being boosted and cut uh, to give that lovely ebb and flow. Uh, You'll hear that the quality of our singing isn't a patch on what Graham, Kevin, Lowell managed in the studio. 
So what Eric and the rest of the band could then do with those 13 tracks of vocals was, as we said before, use the mixing desk almost like a keyboard where they'd take about three or four faders each and individually move those faders up and down to reflect the chords in the song. And they were bouncing live from those 13 tracks onto two tracks of the tape machine so that they'd end up basically with a, a stereo mix of that acapella track. So with our Sherlock Holmes head on, we're thinking they, they bounced from tracks 1 to 13 onto 15 and 16. So at that point, and only at that point, once they were absolutely sure that that stereo mix was exactly what they wanted, they could then take the brave step of deleting those vocal loops on tracks 1 to 13. Now, also, we have to bear in mind that the original backing track that consisted of Kev's Moog bass drum, Graham's guitar and Eric's electric piano, I think were bounced down onto one individual track which I'm thinking has got to be track 14. So that stays as a guide, if you like, for them to then replace those instruments and individual parts on tracks 1 to 13, if that makes sense. They couldn't have recorded it blind with just the vocal track because they wouldn't have been able to get the rhythm right. So they must have kept that original rough backing track to play along to. If we look again at that photo of the tape box in Eric's book, uh, we'll go track by track just to explain what was actually on that magical tape. Tracks one and two were occupied by electric piano. The first one is, if you like, the direct signal from Eric's Fender Rhodes piano. I hear a little bit of reverb, perhaps a little bit of echo on there or delay but generally it's more or less the direct signal coming direct from the, from the instrument. And that's panned left. On track two is the same electric piano, panned right, but with wonderful effects added on. And uh, Strawberry would have had outboard gear, in other words, effects units separate from the desk. And what happens is that you can feed directly from each channel, each track if you like, um, directly into an effects unit. And then the effects unit then sends back a signal that you can then control using a return knob on the mixing desk. And to my ears, Eric sending this electric piano through uh, a delay I think a reverb as well, but notably, I think a wah-wah effect, most commonly used on electric guitar, but very often used as well on electric piano, and it gives you that lovely wow-wow-wow sound, uh, which helps give the sound a real resonance, and I think this is beautiful. My electric piano sound isn't quite right, it's got a bit too much of a click going on, but that unfortunately is the, the closest my software can get to the Fender Rhodes sound. On track three is that marvellous Moog bass drum sound, played by Kev live, 
but programmed by LOL on the Moog that he had. And the Moog was a synthesizer where you could basically program an infinite range of different types of sound from a single waveform. It might be wowie, brassy, violiny, but in this case, there's no sustain to it, just that the click as the note starts. It's a musical note, but it's cut so short, you can't really hear the pitch that, that, that it is. And here's my attempt using my own Moog synthesizer to try and emulate what Kev was doing. On track four, Graham's re-recording that beautiful electric guitar part that he, he recorded on the rough backing track. And again, Eric's EQing it with all of the bass and middle frequencies taking out. So you just get the, the sort of tickly, feathery higher frequencies. And he's playing it beautifully. You can hear that my part is, is very rough shot in comparison. Uh, I, I don't have the fingers that Graham does. Uh, so this is very much a, a, a rough approximation. On tracks five and six, you've got Eric's new lead vocal that he did from end to end without stopping. And allegedly, he kept his first take. And if so, that's a, that's a marvellous first take. And it sounds to me that Eric is feeding that lead vocal into a delay unit, an echo unit, and feeding that back through the desk. And one of the lovely things, the really subtle things that I love about the way he mixed this tune is that he's altering the level of delay on certain parts of the song. And we'll hear a section here near the end of the song where he turns up the delay effect to the point where it actually starts feeding back on itself to really emphasise the final, if you like, the crescendo of his vocal. And I think this is absolutely superb. That's about the closest I could get trying to emulate it with the plug-in effects that I've got on my software. Next up, one of the later parts that was added to the song was Lowell's piano part. The key thing here is that, apart from playing little motifs throughout the song, is that Lowell's piano replaces the vocal melody that Eric sang on that original middle eight. And what you've got here is a, a wonderfully minimal version of that, uh, which, again, Eric's produced so beautifully with a long sustained reverb, I think a little bit of delay on there. But one of the signature sounds of, of Eric's production was that it's not just an echo like you get in a church, for example. It's slightly delayed, so you'll have the sound, like imagine if it's a drum, you'd have a, a quick sound and then there'd be a delay before the splash of reverb, reverb came back. So sort of... And this reverb return is turned up so much, it's almost like the piano is, is, is literally submerged in this beautiful bed of reverb. Absolutely wonderful. And here's my very thin attempt uh, using a, a plastic piano uh, to emulate what Eric was achieving there uh, with Lol's playing.
on tracks eight and ten, you've got Lowell's tinkly music box, but wedged in between those tracks is Graham's groundbreaking bass solo, recorded in the middle, the quiet, slow section of the song. This is interesting to me in, in a few ways. One, the playing is absolutely beautiful. We've, we've talked already several times about what an underrated bass player Graham was. This is really beautifully played in a similar style to what Paul McCartney was doing. And the sound itself is really gorgeous, very warm, bass plugged in directly to the desk, DI, direct injection, which gives you a very, very clean sound. But uh, the technology that, that Eric was using would have been completely analog, of course, which does give you a warm sound. He tended always, as far as we can tell, to have played his bass with a plectrum, which does give you quite a, a strong attack to each note. But he's playing here with real a real gentle touch, a real subtlety. And what you get is something that sounds very plummy and very, very sweet indeed. <laughs> Another thing that really interests me about this, as I was trying to get my fingers around the Graham's lovely, gorgeous melodies and, and, and bass line here, is that the more I played it, the more it seemed that it was really very, very rhythmic. And by that I mean, and, and again, I've got my Sherlock Holmes hat on, it seems to me that Graham would have been playing along to the original backing track for this, you know, that rhythm track created by the Moog bass, his own electric guitar part, and Eric's electric piano. And if we listen here to how that might have sounded in the studio, it's a very, very funky rhythm that he's come up with here. And it almost harks back to how I'm Not In Love would have sounded if they'd used a more standard drum track in many ways. Uh, so this is my imagining of Graham recording that part in the studio. Now, if I'm right in thinking, it was Kev again who came up with that groundbreaking idea to have a bass playing on its own, unaccompanied by any other traditional instruments. Usually, of course, the bass and drums are married together. But in this case, the bass is out on its own. And I really can't think of any other song that uses that technique. Yeah, you get little bass fills, you get little bass solos, particularly in jazz, uh, in bands like Yes, for example, where Chris Squire is given that space to develop a, a bass line. Um, sometimes even being on stage on his own for 10 minutes. But in terms of a pop song, I'm sure that this little bass sequence is unique. You've got separate tracks of Lowell's music box that he bought, I think from a, a junk shop or something like that. Little sort of wind-up children's toy that produces a lovely, magical, almost glockenspiel sound. 
very, very quiet. And they came up with the, the crazy idea of, of, of literally swinging it around in circles in between two mics uh, for a left and right channel. So you've got a wonderfully sort of shifting sound where the music box is playing kind of repeated patterns, but again, washed in reverb for that really, really dreamy character and combined with the beautiful bed of of choral vocals and Lowell's piano, you've got that perfectly perfect tinkling background, almost like a, a starry sky, where the bass can slice through that in a beautiful way. And also, Kathy Redfern's voice can really come through that wonderful soundscape so that it's centre stage. And, and it creates, for me, a superbly three-dimensional sound, reminiscent of what Kevin Lowell were achieving on particularly side one of Consequences. Now, in terms of the, the rest of the tracks, I'm having to put my detective hat on a little bit here. As I said before, it seems that the, the stereo dub of all those 13 tape loops would have to have been bounced down to tracks 15 and 16, which leaves just four tracks left on the tape. 15 and 16 are labelled BV High on the tape box. That's backing vocals, backup vocals, high which I think refers to the fact that the original tape loops they did were sung at quite a high register, but they weren't slowed down yet until they, they recorded a version of those slower tape loops onto tracks 13 and 14. And they used particularly a couple of those lower notes, most notably at the end of the song, where you've got a call and response between two of the higher vocal notes and then there's an echo with those notes, an octave lower. They've had to have created those cello-like notes by literally slowing the tape down to half speed and then bouncing that down to another tape machine and then feeding that back in as a separate tape loop. That's my understanding anyway. Now we come to tracks 11 and 12 on that tape box. These are labelled BVs, which I'm absolutely sure referred to two specific backing vocals that the band inserted that beautifully complement uh, everything else in the track. The first backing vocal section, I believe, is the repeated one sung by both Kev and Lowell and overdubbed four times, uh, according to the Sound on Sound article we were re referring to earlier on, where they sing, It's because... So what we're hearing there is effectively eight voices, Kevin Lowell times four. Now there's a really interesting bit, just as we go into the sort of second middle eight that Eric sings, we hear Kevin Lowell's It's Because stop, and then immediately we hear Eric adding two harmonised backing vocals, where he's singing in harmony with You wait a long time for me. Now the gap there is, is so short, and it's kind of masked by the, the reverb that Eric added afterwards. The gap's so short that I think Pete Tattershaw, who would have been sitting at the controls while Eric was in the studio, would have had to have his finger poised very, very carefully to drop Eric's BVs in at precisely the right point 
if he'd dropped in too early, it would have chopped off the end of, of Kevin Lowell's vocals. And sadly, they'd have had to go back into the studio and do all four overdubs over again. So that's another example of, of incredibly precise and, and professional use of the recording equipment, uh, as Alex Ferguson might have referred to as squeaky bum time. It's because Ooh, you wait a long time for me And of course, as we've said already, the final icing on the cake was bringing Kathy Redfern into the studio to record that iconic voiceover. Be quiet, big boys don't cry. And what we'll do in a second is process that voice in a way similar to what I think Eric was doing to really bring it to the fore. What he's done, I believe, is, is added an effect called compression which squashes down the louder parts of that sound and brings up the quieter parts so that it's completely up front, in your face if you like, and has a, a particularly strong attack. Kathy's voice is beautifully gentle, slightly husky and, and sexy sounding, but what Eric's doing with the processing is to make, is to give that sound a, a, a real edge. And that's one of the reasons it leaps so beautifully up front with the, that beautiful bed of tinkling going on behind. Absolutely marvellous. Be quiet. Big boys don't cry. Big boys don't cry. Big boys don't cry. So it's in the can. We've got six minutes and six seconds of utter brilliance. And I love hearing Eric remember the four of them in the dark playing the song over and over and over again for hours, days, kind of almost in disbelief at what they created. That must have been a really magical time. Uh, and they knew they created something amazing. And I think the record company certainly did as well, didn't they? Yes. Um, Eric talks about using, inviting different record companies up to Strawberry and letting them hear different tracks because this was the time they were looking to get out of their UK records contract with Jonathan King. Mm. And so uh, what better thing to do than invite up a record company and play them on Not In Love and they were, <laughs> they were bowled over. Yeah, and uh, as, as Ken was saying in, in our last podcast, they knew that that was, that that was the single. Yeah. They, they knew. But I think they were perhaps a little bit worried about releasing something that was so unusual and so long uh, so I think Minestrone went out as a kind of a, a more conventional single didn't it? Yeah because it was a kind of relaunch for the band as, as again as Ken was describing this this was a new band on a new label so it was slightly risky. Mm. Minestrone got to number seven and I'm Not In Love was destined to get to number one. Interesting parallel there with in the same year with Queen who, who did go with their masterpiece as the lead single and it got to number one. Mm. And then their follow-up single, the much more friendly You're My Best Friend, got to number seven. Yeah. I find it very unorthodox that I'm Not In Love sat on the album for as long as it did, actually. 
before, before it, being it released. was released as a single. Well, it wasn't long. There was only eight weeks between the release of Minestrone. But I think that's a long time in, in, in terms of pop. Well, yes. Normally, you'd, you'd have, sorry, you'd, normally you'd have the big single uh, would, would put its toe in the water just before the album came out, wouldn't it? I guess so, yeah. Um, but, you know, contra-wise, um, eight weeks isn't a long time between singles. And there was a lot of mm. yeah, momentum Yeah, that's very, that's very hot on the heels, isn't and it? And they were getting, uh, uh, they were getting uh, not emails, sorry, we're in, uh, out of time here. Mm. Uh, they were getting letters or telegrams from Roy Wood, yeah. I think Brian Ferry, uh, loads of people saying, this is fantastic. You've, You've got, got to, to put this out. Yes, and uh, and because they had to, the BBC uh, requested a an edit, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, Eric says that he, they edited edited it down to four minutes ten. Uh, and interestingly, when the record got to number twenty eight in the charts, Eric was saying, the BBC started to play the long version because such a, a groundswell of 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 rave reviews had come mm. in for this amazing full length version. Yeah that they then started uh, playing it. I personally, I can't recall ever hearing a shortened edit on the radio. Uh, uh, no, only more recently on the radio. Now, oh, OK, is, that's yeah, interesting. Uh, or on the TV, on a clip show, you might see an edited version, which is a shame because... What did they cut out? Uh, there's various edits flying around. There's a horrible one where they cut out... The first half of the last verse, I think. So you go almost straight to "I'm not in love." Mm. So which it's is just awful. a silly phase I'm going through. I'm not in love. I is think, that what you? That I think sort so. of thing. I hate that one. Mm. And, and I presume they cut out Kathy's Kathy's bit and the piano, the bass, the bass solo. The bass and, solo. But um, I know those elements have got to be in there. The song needs room to breathe. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's take the Venus de Milo. Let's um, let's. Let's I know, chop it's, arm, I know it's, it's arms. Oh, wait, are, wait his arms are off already. Let's <laughs> remove the legs and the hair. Uh, yeah, outrageous. Luckily, that didn't happen. Uh, so it, it's you know it's it's basically in the consciousness, in its full form. Thankfully, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Much like Bohemian Rhapsody. Sorry to bang on about the two pieces again. There is definitely a. Um, uh, Something happening in 1975, and that was another song they tried to chop up, and luckily they resisted the, the temptation <laughs> to do that as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think things were pop production was peaking, wasn't it, around that time? Uh, and the fact that we've got, I think, two of the best produced records of all time appearing very close together. Oh yeah, um, really, really superb. And it's it's great that the song gave the band complete vindication in terms of how successful it was all over the world. It was number one in a few countries, wasn't it? Canada, Britain, mm. probably Holland. I know they've, they've been really popular in Holland. Yes. Number two in America, which was a, would have been a huge feather in their cap. Oh, yeah, and propelled the album into the top 20. Yeah. So real, real breakthrough for them. Yeah. Uh, and the record's been taken up as, as a, a mainstream staple, one of the classic... The classic songs, um, the publishing rights to it must have netted Eric and Graham a lot of money over the over the years. Even though lots of the cover versions have been a bit naff, <laughs> but there's been some really high-profile ones. Right. And uh, obviously, you've all already heard, folks, uh, a few clips from <laughs> the existing versions. Um, I think we should have a little. Uh, 
an unofficial quiz. What do you reckon? Definitely. Uh, see who can list all of the artists in order. Yeah, guess the weight of the cake. On our Frankenstein's monster yeah, of, and a, we'll, of a montage of, of, of cover versions. I think there are only 17 or something yeah, versions. No, on no prizes, and we'll, we'll, post, we'll post the results in a few <laughs> yeah. days. Just, we'll post the, 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 the names of the, the versions me. in a few days. Yeah. But it's, um, for Eric and Graham, huge kudos for, for having written the thing. For 10CC, huge kudos for working together so, so beautifully with inspirational, brilliant ideas. It's lovely hearing Lol in the documentary say it's the best piece of music he's ever been involved. That's a lovely yeah. thing to say, it, isn't it? it? it Considering really, really all is. the great songs he's written. I know, I know. Uh, and Kev, bless him, uh, again, doesn't seem to have a particularly positive word to say oh, about he, it. I, I, did, no, no, I heard does. a quote that disturbed me, and it, it did annoy me because uh, he was asked uh, in one interview, I don't, I don't know when, he was asked why he left 10CC or how it felt not to be part of that anymore. And he said he didn't want to do any more crap like I'm not in love. Uh, it might have been said with a smile on his face. You know? I, I hope it was, because he, he did say, uh, as he said many times, but I wish I'd written the fucking thing. Well, uh, what, yeah, what he actually said, there was a, uh, a documentary um, uh, nearly 20 years ago now about, it was called Heartbreakers, about you know the great love songs of all time. Yeah. And there was a lot of people emoting about I'm not in love and how it made me cry. Uh, and they asked Kev and he said, well, it made me cry because I didn't fucking write it. (laughs) (laughs) But he also said, as we alluded to before, every idea we tried on that song made it better. He realises how extraordinary it is, Mm. undoubtedly. Yeah, Yeah. and sometimes that magic chemistry happens, doesn't it? Uh, And every, every moment of creativity on the record is brilliant. You look at literally a year later when they're all... Uh, slapping together that kind of Frankenstein's version of people in love. Yeah. It, the chemistry just didn't happen, did it? Yeah, it disappears. Everything rises to a peak and, and comes down again. And, yeah. And that, that was their peak. And, uh, yeah, it was, began to splinter after no. that. But yeah. But ultimately, like you, you, you alluded to earlier, Paul, if you've got a brilliant song in the first place, then the arrangement kind of takes care of itself. OK, that, that's a very bland way of dismissing the amazing work they did in the studio with this one. But it was a beautiful song to start with. It is. And, it is, it, yeah. and it's a wonderful record to finish with. And an afterword about I'm Not In Love, it's become a little bit bittersweet for, for 10CC, or, or, or did become. I mean, it was obviously a song that they struggled with in a live setting because it couldn't be recreated in its original form. Yes. They used tapes, fair enough. Um, but I'm thinking of later on when uh, Eric and Graham weren't having the best time in their careers and I think the deal was in 1992, three was it, when they had the Japanese deal which resulted in the album Mirror Mirror. Yeah. I think they were strong-armed into recording an acoustic version of I'm Not In Love, mm. which got in the charts. Yeah. But it must have been a little disheartening. You know, to uh, to have to do that, and maybe that maybe they've come to peace with it now. Obviously, it's a song that it demands to be heard yep. in any current Graham's version of 10 CC concert, yep. and rightly so. Um, and that's something uh, Kevin Lowell escaped. Okay, they didn't write the song, and they weren't 
no longer they, were they directly associated with it by the time they'd left 10cc. So maybe that's something which didn't affect them, but mm. did affect. It's a shame, isn't it? No one asked Da Vinci to repaint the Mona Lisa. <laughs> and that effectively is the equivalent. Yeah, well, Da Vinci didn't really go out on tour much. <laughs> so he didn't, he didn't face that issue. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> nice one. So don't you ask me 
been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean mccreevy thanks for listening now just as a little postscript it would be rude of me not to include the piece that paul recorded maybe 20 years ago for his into the red album uh, uh, the ultimate tribute to one of the best pop albums ever made in our opinion elo's out of the blue and uh, I, I can't resist taking credit for being a bit of a, a Kev Godley and coming up with a crazy idea for how he could do a solo rendition of an instrumental. And we're talking about the whale on that album, of course. And I jokingly suggested to him at the time that he, he might do it a cappella. And of course, he bloody did. And uh, what we'll do, just as a treat, we'll give you a little snippet of how Paul spent probably a couple of weeks of his time and money in a studio in South London. And I think creating something that was really, really beautiful. So, again, this is our way of, of thanking Kev, Lol, Eric and Graham for their masterpiece. You know, who are we to even think of trying to emulate it? We tried because we simply love it. Thank you. Thank you.